This audio file is part of the Libri Ideas Library and podcast series. Feel free to share it with friends, family and colleagues, but we ask you to respect the copyright which belongs to Libri Fellowship. Please don't modify this file in any way or publish the material in any format. Also note that the views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. Welcome everyone to English Libri on this Friday, on this rainy Friday night. My name is Philip Johnson. I used to work here uh, from around 2016 to 2018, and now I, I serve one of the local churches in this area. It's a privilege to be here tonight to uh, launch um, a book. It is not the only book that's been launched here over the past three years. In fact, there's been a kind of a mini renaissance of books coming out of this, well, this room, actually. Ideas that were kind of seeded in this space that have gone out into the world in book form. So in, uh, in 2021, you had uh, Jim Paul's book, What on Earth is Heaven? Raise your hand if you have a copy of this. Okay. If your hand's not up, there's copies in the front. And then last year, although Andrew's not um, here at English Libri anymore, we had Smuggling Jesus Back into the Church by Andrew Fellows. Uh, yeah, hands raised for that one, too. <laughs> Um, yeah, I could sell you copies of any of those, either of those. Sarah, Sarah would gladly sell you copies of any of these and even do a, a down payment if you can't pay it all tonight. Um, and then now, tonight, we have um, Rumors of a Better Country by Marsh Moyle, which was released on the 19th just uh, yesterday, I guess. Released yes. yesterday. And we're going to spend this evening being introduced to this book by Marsh. Um, so what I wanted us to do, the way it's going to work tonight, is that Marsh is going to read from the book, uh, a little, a small section of the book, and then he and I will talk about it together, and we will unpack some of the way the book works, and then after that we'll be open for discussion if you'd like to ask Marsh questions about the book. Um, not questions like, why should I buy this, but questions, <laughs> we, we, we hope you'll be given that answer uh, some, sometime in the next hour. But uh, yeah, questions of anything that is raised tonight that you'd like to ask more about, or if some of you have read the book already, things you might like to ask about too. Um, as Sarah said, you probably saw copies are on sale at the table in the front, and they will be on the way out too. Marsh will be out at that table, I imagine, to sign, to sign sure. more copies. Um, if you haven't signed one yet. And I think there is a, uh, a kind of offer going where it's two for the price of one, but you only take one home because the other one goes to uh, be given to some, someone in Eastern Europe um, as a free copy. So if you'd like to do that, um, that's available to you out at the front table as well. But without any further ado, we have Marsh Moyle here tonight. Um, launching his book, and I'm going to ask Marsh to read a bit of it for us before we talk about it together. So Marsh, could you give us a little introduction to Rumors of a Better Country? Okay, thank you. Thank you all for coming and uh, for listening. I'm only going to read a little bit until, until you go to sleep. So, um, the last one awake. <coughs> um, yeah, I'm going to read a little from the prologue and from the second chapter, which is a sort of introduction to what the book is about. In the early 1980s, when the Iron Curtain was a permanent part of Europe, I was in Czechoslovakia meeting people who distributed literature that had been smuggled into the country. Thank you. <laughs> 
One winter evening, I went with a friend to a crowded pub and we found space in the last remaining table. Soon, three men, more Middle Eastern than Czech, took the last remaining seats. We introduced ourselves as the waiter brought beer. They were from Palestine, sent to study in Czechoslovakia by the Palestinian Liberation Organization. In those days, we thought the PLO was a terrorist organization and could be, imagine the kind of training they were receiving. In hindsight, they were probably learning to be accountants or town planners. Cigarette smoke hung th as thick as the heavy snowfall we watched through a perspiring window. We were soon deep in conversation. I asked about their hopes for a liberated Palestine. Their passion was infectious. They spoke eagerly of their dreams of self-determination, of having their own state, personal responsibility and the freedom to think and act for themselves. It seemed slightly ironic that some of the freedoms they wanted were denied in the country where they studied. But we agreed with them. We wanted the same for our friends in Czechoslovakia, though it would have been unwise to say it aloud. As we listened, a question was forming in my mind. Your dreams, your dreams are rich, and I hope you achieve them, I said. But is your dream large enough? They were shocked. What could be more important than what they described? So they asked what I meant. If you get your dream, and I hope you do, slightly ironic in the of this week's events, if you get your dreams, and I hope you do, what will make your country any different from those around it? Will your communities be more trusting? Will a few powerful people dominate everyone else? Will people be able to trust each other? Or will they have to look over their shoulder? You'll have freedom from external <coughs> oppression, but little freedom from our common universal struggles. There will still be murders, thefts and corruption. My country enjoys many of the freedoms you want, but I'm still asking and seeking for a better country. The laughter and chatter in the pub grew as the evening wore on. We talked for a while about the vision of a, a, a good country and what that might be. Our conversation meandered to other themes and then went in, out into the snow. Could there be a better country? I was cynical. Untethered utopian dreams lead to totalitarianism. Beware the impatience of idealists who, can live with who cannot live with less than their ideal, who seek to save humanity but have little time for humans. Wasn't the world torn apart by the romantic idealism of the 20th century? Didn't Hitler, Lenin and Stalin want heaven on earth? Mao Zedong said, all political power comes out of the barrel of a gun. A better country must be better for everyone. But how do we know what makes a better country? What does it mean to live together well? And what would it take to be a thriving community of unique people who get along well? It is of trust where difference does not threaten and power is not abused. What would make people safe to be vulnerable enough to have deep and meaningful relationships? These are the questions of our age.
We live in a time of moral outrage and judgment. There is much to be outraged about. Is it not tragic that companies need policies on modern slavery or that women should walk in fear at night? People speak of cancelling each other in the search for a new moral order of left or right. We're polarised in ways we've not been for generations. Every day one hears of people withdrawing from public discussion or ceasing to talk deeply with friends, afraid to cross the invisible lines where minds have closed. Tech giants manipulate our data in exchange for previously unimagined convenience, but they influence, but they influence our opinions and fragment us into silos of hostility. Fear replaces trust in our public discourse, which cannot bode well for society. So we must ask if the new moral dream will produce a better country. Maybe a country is too big to think about. Perhaps it's enough to imagine a local community sitting in your tea shop or pubs, visiting the mosque or church, or when we eat together around the table. We must ask, what is the foundation of a better community? Our moral imagination is the ability to conceive of fruitful alternatives to present realities. Mine was awakened in that Czech pub. The hunger for a better country and a thriving community has stayed with me. In an age where the call for justice is strong again, we should ask the question my, I asked my Palestinian friends. Is our dream big enough? So that's the first part from the prologue. And then this part from, thank you, from chapter two. It comes from a section called Trust, Meaning and Relationship. Meaningful relationships need a foundation of trust and trust requires trustworthiness. Whatever goodness is, it must describe the, best, uh, the basis of trustworthiness necessary to build and sustain trust. A lack of trust leads to impoverished relationships. When my mother fell ill in her old age, I was beside her bed. We lived in Central Europe and I had travelled widely that year, so the chances of being with her were slim. Sorry. So I went in and helped them. It was a glorious, sunny day, perfect for a wedding, but there are no good days to die. The ambulance took hours to arrive, and after examination, the hospital told us she'd have to stay overnight. Then at 3 a.m., we received a call from the hospital and rushed over. They said they could do nothing, as she would not survive an operation. When I told my mother, she prayed and thanked God for her life and family. And then she spent time with my father, who, who knows how, in those hurried moments, they drew the curtain on 60 years of friendship and love. She then surprised me by asking for a phone and called as many of her children, grandchildren and other friends as she could reach and commended them to the God she soon expected to meet. Other people were the focus of her life. It was, to me, a beautiful death as much as any death can be, and not all deaths are. My mother taught me how to die just as she taught me how to live. She faced dying with the courage and fierce tenacity 
which, with which she had confronted all of life's challenges. Encounters with my mother were always meaningful. She met death knowing her life had purpose, meaning, and above all, relationships. Perhaps you see death as biological, reflecting some more materialistic assumptions, a heart no longer beating or absence of brainwaves. But these, are, these signs merely point to the absence of life. The signs have been confused with what they point to. We are much more than the sum of our physical parts and biological functions. Instead, death is about separation. Someone once present is now absent. The severance of a relationship leads to the loss of meaning. And for this reason, grief involves feelings of meaninglessness. Those who knew my mother sensed a loss of meaning in their own lives. Her death went beyond her to something dying in them. Something unique to her was missing in us. Relationships are essential for our mental health and development. We gain self-knowledge through honest interaction with other people who help us learn how other people experience us. They draw more out of us than we could on our own. Our personhood is dependent upon other people. Trusting relationships also allow us to test our experience against the reality outside. For example, if Mrs. Jones trusts me, she might tell me if Mr. Jones is being rude because he dislikes me or because he's just having a bad day. As we wandered through the town on the day after my mother's death, people were out shopping and about their business. Stunned in the suddenness of unfathomable grief, my father wondered why the world went on as if nothing had changed. The cluster of artifacts, her glasses, the crossword unfinished on the arm of her chair, her tube of hand cream, recipes in her handwriting, had been woven together in the, by the common thread of her existence. Now there were fragments without a centre. They had been hers, but now she was absent. There was no one to give them meaning. There was no universal reference point to make sense of the particulars of the, of the objects she'd left behind. Is this, I wondered, the human condition, without connection to the source of existence, to the personal and infinite being some people call God? I cannot know what you believe about absolute reality. If your universe is empty, impersonal and without meaning, or not. Mine is not, but coming to believe this has not been easy or automatic. I tried to live with the belief that the universe was meaningless. I was faced with the need to make sense of a life that includes death. The need for the universe to have an infinite and personal being behind it, one who makes sense of all the particulars and gives them meaning, has been a strong argument to my mind. On grey Saturday afternoons in my London childhood, we would visit my parents' friends. Our hosts would give me an old plastic bag full of dismembered alarm clocks to keep me entertained while the adults discussed politics with one eye on the football scores. The long unwound springs, glass cogwheels, bells and clock faces were fascinating, but my six-year-old mind could not put the fragments together. 
I knew they were parts of alarm clocks because I'd seen a working one. But where could I find a pen on a map that made sense of the parts? My life has sometimes felt like broken clocks, and I see from the stories in the media that I'm not alone. Whatever you think of God, a fundamental truth, a useful fiction, or a dangerous lie, it's undeniable that the death of belief in a transcendent being at the centre of Western culture has left us with profound fragmentation. We discover the fragments in our search for authenticity, the sense that we do not measure up to our own standards. They're behind what some people call alienation, that experience that life has no meaning, or when we look for integrity in people to whom we relate. We experience the fragments in our dysfunction, in our broken relationships, and the struggle between chaos and control, impulse and order, the ideal and the real, and in the emotions that loom so large or are so frozen shut. They show up in moments of loneliness, envy, misunderstanding, defensiveness and disconnection. We feel their sharp edges when we lose our sense of direction and feel worthless. They appear in the relentless self-justifications of a conscience that allows no peace, or restless nights and an anxious mind unable to switch off, or the strange distortions of the imagination. They appear when our biology and psychology feel at odds with each other. They show up in our psychoses, our phobias, our prejudices, in the terror between shame and exposure or in the gaps between belief and behaviour. We numb them with our addictions, be they socially acceptable or not. Think of the wealthy woman whose irrational fear of poverty keeps her working late every night even though she has enough wealth for two lifetimes. Or the addict, hi addict hiding in the alley trembling for his next hit. Society searches relentlessly for norms around which to organise the fragments shuffling the deck time and again, hoping for the golden hand. We know there's something better if only we could find it. Did you ever hear a politician say, vote for me, things are as good as they can get? Did you ever hear an advertiser proclaim, this product will add no value or do nothing for you? Though many have promised and tried, no political system, left, right, centre, periphery, cosmopolitan or provincial, has put the clock back together again. And yet we can imagine a better life. We long for integration, meaning and relationships of trust. Do the fragments point to something that was once whole? Do the glass shards on the floor point to a window that once kept out the wind? My desire for home and a better country made me wonder if the fragments of our relationships point to the possibility of meaning, trust and love from which we have departed and to which we might return. Thank you, Marsh. You have a seat here. Thank you. <coughs> us that gives us a taste of how you how you invite people into the content 
and a bit of the personal nature of the book too. It's not at all an abstract and glossy uh, book. It's very personal in so many ways for you. I wanted to start with that aspect of things. Um, this is your this is your first book, um, but you've been working with books for many years, not just as a reader and speaker, but in publishing um, in when you were in Central Europe. Um, can you tell us a bit about how your experience experience working to get books published in Eastern Europe prepared you to write a book um, with the subtitle Searching for Trust and Community um, in a Time of Moral Outrage? What did you learn about trust and community working there? Well, when we first, when I first moved to Austria, where, where I um, lived when I was 20, um, the Iron Curtain was still a part of Central Europe, right the way across from the Baltic to the Balkans. And um, I got involved in, I went to visit people, got involved in smuggling books to people who weren't allowed to read them. And I, I found that outrageous, that you couldn't get a book. And um, I worked with a group, a large group of people, and we shipped tons of books to, from the West to Eastern Europe um, and printing machines and printing presses and all sorts of things. And we had people, maybe two or three hundred at a time, who would be in prison for doing that kind of work on, on their side. I mean, it wasn't so dangerous for us, but it was yeah. for them it was very, very difficult. So that was the first um, 15 years of our being in, in Central Europe. And uh, we spent all the time traveling, talking to people. And, and I can remember one time when um, a whole network of people, and I'd write a book, were, were arrested and put in prison. One of them died, another was exiled to Finland, actually, and uh, the other spent five or eight years in prison for distributing books. Um, and I had to go to that country and spend time trying to find new people to, to do the same work that they'd just been put in prison for. And it took three years, and it took um, just a lot of talking to people and trying to s answer the question, can we trust them? And, and um, I learned a huge amount about human behavior and 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 because you can't go, just go out and say will you do this you, you've got to get to know before you even ask the question um, of trust and so by triangulation by um what was a typical entree into a relationship um gosh it's a long time ago <laughs> and or maybe, or maybe the kind of the kind of thing that kind of thing well, I mean, I would just go and st start the general conversation. I mean, I'd found out as much of the people about the people as I could before I went. Mm -hmm. um, and you find little toeholds, and then you ask them about and Then you go to the next person that they recommend, and, and you build a map, a matrix, and then you start to sort of find out who is trustworthy and who isn't. And, and, um, and then we had some wonderful experiences with, with people who we, we, we did get to trust and, and work with for the rest of the time that the Iron Curtain was there. Um, very faithful and very courageous people. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it was in 
struggling, I guess, to, to establish relationships of trust or in the total absence of it. Yeah. Did that increase your longing for it? Or, or did it make you cynical about it? What was the yeah, it did both. Okay. <laughs> it, it did both. Because at one level, you could trust people, certain people, and at other levels, you, you, you saw people say the most awful things and the most, even under persecution, you, you get the idea that suddenly when someone is under persecution, they become very nice and holy, and it's just not true. They become, what's inside comes out, and it comes out in a, in a, in a graphic way. And um, as I say, there were some wonderful people, and there some really difficult people. Yeah. And there were people who were just terrified, but wanted to do something. So you had people managing their own fears. Um, and, and that's courage. Um, when, when someone who's afraid to do something does it anyway. Um, and I'm probably not answering your question, am, am I? Um, no, I was just wondering about that dynamic in yourself of the longing, the, the longing for trust and perhaps the cynicism that it might not be something you'd ever be able to get to with some people. Well, I think probably my own history, which I do go into in the first bit of the book, of yeah. when I was very small going to Malta and yeah. living there, and having kind of relationships here severed um, made me um, sensitive and vulnerable. And every year, because it was a military school, every year people would leave. And one of the things you need for trust is continuity yeah. to build up. And so my, the scar it's left in me of, of, of not being sure, yeah. um, uh, which, is, which is something I still have to continue to wrestle with. Yeah. Um, but it, it um, and it, in certain cultures, and we live in, a, in Britain, even though you, you will find it hard to believe this, this is a culture of very high trust. Um, it's, it's sinking, but it's, it's much higher than most of the places I've worked. And when you, you're in a culture of very low trust, you really, really see the difference. Um, it took me, when I, I was here three years before I was looking around and I, there's some people here I could really trust more. You know, it slowly dawned on me because I'm a you know, little bit of a slow learner, I guess. But I, 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 I thought, yeah, there, there's some people I could probably trust them a lot more than I do. Um, but it was, a hard, it was a hard conscious step. Of, yeah. Um, and... Uh, yeah. And so it seems like there are multiple aspects of your life, not just the work in Eastern Europe, that have kind of prepared you, or that have increased your longing for trust. Yeah. And arriving in this area and having kind of stability, realizing it's an area of high trust, is a great um, place for these ideas to grow in many ways for you. Most of us don't think about trust very much at all. Yeah. But when you're there and in a place where you have to think about it, then you start to say, well, what is it, and how does it work, and how does it, how do you, how does it flow in a society? Um, and it's not always, uh, it's not automatic. Many of us treat it as if it is automatic until we get hurt. The book begins and ends in a unique way. Um, you didn't quite get to this point in the in the reading, but it throughout the book. Um, all the way through, you invite us into the cafe now and not yet. And you invite us there to listen in on co to conversations on what a better country, a place of, a country of trust and community, um, might look like. 
that's the cafe now and not yet. Can you tell us a little bit about the cafe? Um, is it just a fictional device that you worked with in the book, or is the cafe a real place um, that you have been to over the course of your life? The cafe is a real place. Um, the cafe is many places. I've been to the cafe in Russia and Ukraine and... Do you remember where you first met me? <laughs> uh, no, you didn't. He didn't. But it was in it was in Bryan College, wasn't There's it? A cafe now, yeah. not yet in rural Tennessee. Yeah, there you are. Rural. Ten we had a cafe now, not yet in rural Tennessee. We were snowed into a house together. That's right. We were snowed into a house together. <laughs> yeah, we were. Yeah, and if I remember, you were the only person in the room. Who, you were 20, 21? And see how he's grown? <laughs> and and it, you, were, you were the only one there who knew anything about Russian film. <laughs> and I thought, this is fascinating. This is really great. So I kind of... I guess you don't go to rural Tennessee to the home of the Scopes Monkey Trial to find kids who are talking about <laughs> That's right, you don't. It was a bit of a surprise. It was very well. Was. <laughs> it was a very welcome surprise. The cafe now. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> anyway, we've done the cafe now and not yet all over the place. Um, I've done it in a poker club in Dallas. I've Polka done it. Or poker. Poker. Okay. <laughs> I've done it in um, South Africa in. Um, just there, yeah, lots and lots of places. The, probably the, one of the most interesting was with a group of Ukrainian politicians. And, and what the cafe is, is it's, it's a cafe. We serve coffee and we've set it up. We've done it many times in this room. We set up tables, we put tablecloths, we give um, uh, candles and, and uh, coffee and cake. And the people get um, one word from the Decalogue. So you shall not steal. And then we ask the group, the table, to say what would change economically, sociologically, psychologically, if everyone everywhere just kept that one, that one word. And, um, and people sit there for 40 minutes or so and they work on it. The first 20 minutes is hard work because they're not used to imagining. And then slowly they tend to get into it. And this, in, in, we did it quite a number of times with politicians in, in Ukraine. And uh, one time, we were with a group of these, these guys from the Christian uh, Democratic Party. And one of them stood up and he slammed his fist on the table and he said, this could be our manifesto. Mm -hmm. Because he, he, he really got it. He saw what a world would be like um, with, with, without theft. And of course, then you look into yourself and you say, yeah, but and he got to the, the one on, on don't bear false witness. And he said, this one, this one would never work in Ukraine. <laughs> <laughs> well, not just in Ukraine, but anyway, so that it, yes, it did. It does exist. We do it frequently. Um, and it's an exercise in awakening the men, the moral imagination to imagine. So one of the things I've learned over the years is that we all talk about goodness as if we know what it is. 
And if you start to think about it, it becomes very fuzzy and very abstract very quickly. And what this book is really... How does it become abstract? What is, how what do, is the abstract well, we, we, well, some people just become cynical because, well, this will never work. And, and some people just start to, we start to talk about the common good and other vague terms. We don't talk about very concrete things. Um, if you imagined, just take the, 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 the command not to steal. If you imagine, how many of you have got keys in your pockets? Keys? Yeah. How many of you have a PIN number on your credit card? How many of you have a credit card? <laughs> um, if you imagine all the keys in London being put into Trafalgar Square, how high would the moon of metal be? It would be touching Nelson's toes. <laughs> <laughs> and it would completely drown out the National Gallery, probably, and it would be spilling all the way down to Downing Street. And that's just the keys. If you added the locks and the millions of miles of, of, of CCTV camera, the cables and so on. And all of that metal had to be drawn up from the earth. And the one reason for that is because someone wants your stuff. It's none of it necessary if we could all commit just to, just to working and, and, and sharing or being generous, which is, of course, the... the the other side of not stealing is to be generous to others. Uh, and, and just because we can't do that, you know, you know what it's like to lose your keys. And uh, I have a you know, dear wife who the book is dedicated because she always knows where my keys are. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, um, and so, yeah, the Café Now Not Yet is there to stimulate the moral imagination so that I can say, what do I actually want? Do I want more trust? Do I want more life, communion with other people? If death is separation, life is being together. And there's nothing like theft to push you apart. <laughs> and and uh, you, can, you, you can go into great depths with it. And it's extremely practical. It's not some abstract <coughs> theoretician. Yeah. It's, it's solid. Yeah. Yeah. So at the, you've described the cafe, no, not yet, as an imaginative space that people are invited into to imagine a better country through the lens of the Decalogue, Ten Commandments. Right. Mm -hmm. And that is related to the sculpture that is at, always at the center of the cafe. Well, you can't drag that thing to every cafe. It wasn't in rural Tennessee. I don't think it would have gotten that through customs. Um, but yeah, this sculpture is at the center of the cafe, not yet. It's by a Romanian artist named... Liviu Mocan. Liviu Mocan. How did, how did this particular sculpture, which if you have a copy of the book, you see it on the back there. There's a small image of it. And actually, on the in the cafe chapters, um, you see—is it the plan for the sculpture? Yes, the, the plan. Architectural, yeah. or the yeah, you see that on one of these pages. Anyway, it, it's in the book. Tell us how you first encountered that sculpture, and um, a bit of invite us into the sculpture a little bit. What is it? What is it doing? What is it saying? Well, I met Liviu many many years ago, just after the Iron Curtain had fallen. Um, 
But this sculpture came, I can't remember when we got it. I found it, he was in a conference I was at in um, Hungary, and I just saw it, and I knew, uh, I, I intuited what it meant, and he was there, and I, I took him around it, and we discussed it. And I said, this is exactly um, what I'm teaching. So had you been doing the cafe before the sculpture? Yes, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and um, he, this is a model of a full-size sculpture that was originally made for the city of Geneva uh, for the 500th anniversary of the birth of John Calvin. Um, but it's now in Cluj in Romania. And each one of these is five meters tall, so really, really high. Um, and, and this um, is just a model he made as he was thinking about it and trying to work on it. And um, now I use it. I actually have a video made by a, a Czech um, a cinematographer who, who, who saw my pain and realized that you can't, this is very heavy. You can't lift it easily. And um, he was trying to think about um, goodness. And so he, he said, well, what, what is this like? He made these 10 um, fingers which come out of this brass plate. And what I like to do is I like to put it in the middle of the room here or wherever I'm, I'm working. And I, I say to people, what do you see? And they start to work on, on what they see and they start to try to understand the, um, the thing. I don't tell them what it's about. I don't tell them anything about it, actually, until the, um, they start to say, well, there's these ten things, and it seems inside invites you in. But the outside is a, it is a bit frightening. In fact, I wanted to have this as the cover of the book, and my, um, the publisher said, no, it's too, it's too frightening. I said, it's supposed to be frightening. <laughs> it's supposed to help you understand the seriousness of what we're talking about. And so you, if you stand on the outside, you see these sharp edges and it offends you. I ask people, do you like it? And often they say no. And that's all right. You don't have to like it. But do you like the inside? Well, yeah, I do like the inside. Because the inside draws me in. And if you look, and you can come and look afterwards if you want, you'll see that each pillar is reflected in all the other pillars. So it makes a matrix. All of them. He said when he put the original one up, the sun shone in, and it, it was so, the light inside was so intense, he couldn't stay there. And, and there's a little man in here who's meditating on whatever this is. And he um, is thinking. And the question is, who is he? Well, I don't know who he is. Um, he may be me. He may be you. He may be um, King David who was the psalmist who said, I meditate on your laws day and night. And I asked myself, well, what on earth is he thinking about? And then uh, I begin to think about stealing and murder on the outside. And in the inside is the place where they don't exist. So what is that place like? A place where instead of having, having murder, you have life. Instead of having theft, you have generosity. 
And so inside is bright. I can't go into the detail of it in just a short time, but um, it's called the invitation. God's invitation to the fullness of life, where you can have deep relationships with other people because you are trustworthy and they are trustworthy. All human beings know one another because we reveal ourselves to each other. That's how human knowledge works. I can guess a little bit about you. I can learn something about you, but I know you because we have a, an interactive relationship where we reveal ourselves and where we trust each other, we give ourselves. We have a crisis of loneliness because we don't recognize that as a means of human knowledge. So this is, this, is the, yeah. this is what this is about. There's lots more one can say about it. There, well, I will say one thing more, because I know you're going to ask me. If you, if you look at it, if you really turned all the lights out, you'd see the candle in the middle, and you'd see these ghoulish kind of shadows that go up the wall. And one of the questions I ask is, well, what is a shadow? And the answer is, this is really the very, very short version, the answer is, a shadow is a two-dimensional re representation of a three-dimensional reality. So what this thing was in the Old Testament was a, was a reduction. And we tried to make it into the real thing. It's a bit like as if I was going to say, I'm going to go to London. At the top of the hill here, in, in Gretham, there's a signpost and it says London. And I sit down at the signpost and I say, well, now I've arrived. <laughs> and that's how we often treat this Old Testament law, because it's a shadow. It's not the full thing. And we work on how, how we're supposed to do this thing, and it doesn't work. Because we've sat down at the sign instead of gone on to the full thing. Anyway. Ten Commandments, Decalogue being ten words. Um, was there was there a particular word of the Decalogue that made you've talked about thou shalt not steal? Um, maybe another one, or if it was that one, we could talk more about it. But was there a particular word of the Decalogue that captured your imagination at some point before the cafe began, and that made you think, ah, this is actually this is our manifesto. <laughs> this is the foundation for a better country. Is there one that captured you at some point where you began to think of its possibilities and meditate on what it might be revealed coming inside, what, what that would be like? Well, the whole thing unra un unraveled itself to me slowly over a good number of years. And the first... Starting when, starting in, when you were very young? or nine. 1983. Okay. Um, that's the first intuition I had about it. Okay. And uh, I was looking. I was actually in 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 a study with uh, a fellow by the name of Professor Gooding, and he casually said, um, when David was talking about meditating on the law, he was talking about the commandments. And he meditated day and night. He said. And then he walked out the door and left. <laughs> and, uh, 
and I'm an insomniac, so I thought, well, I can do the nights. <laughs> and I started to think, you know, what on earth is this about? It's such a small amount of text. And one night, in over three years, every three months, I would wake up at about three in the morning and have a moment of absolute clarity. Don't know where it came from. It must have been working in my mind without realizing it. Um, and the first one was the, 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 the introduction is interesting because it says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So slavery is important and it's wrong. I want you to be free. And that everything I've ever heard about this doesn't speak about freedom. So I thought, what, you know, these laws, they're so black. And everyone, in fact, I made them write in, in my contract that they wouldn't use the words Ten Commandments because they are so universally negative and hated. Um, I thought if they start using that as publicity, that's the death of the book. I probably killed it for you all now. And, and but the, this is supposed to be freedom. And if David says, it's like gold, it's like um, honey, thank you, um, then I'm not going to accept any explanation that doesn't leave me more free, that doesn't taste like honey in my mouth, and that isn't heavy and gloriously light. And if it's anything else, I'm not interested in it. And I've got books and books on this, which, which are anything but that. And the, the, then the next breakthrough for me was realizing that I had all of this baggage in my head and, and lying there at night think, listening to myself say the first commandment. And the first commandment is, have no other gods before me. And what I was hearing was this voice saying, don't you dare have any other gods before me or I'm going to smack your face in. Um, and I'm sitting there thinking, well, I know it's serious, and this being behind the back of the universe who created all the galaxies and everything must be big and I'm small, but that's not this kind of fear. Um, and is there another way of understanding that? And, I th and I, so I started to explore it. Well, what could it possibly be? And the idea that it was let there be nothing in between us. Here am I, the most creative being in the universe, the most intelligent being in the universe, the most beautiful being in the universe, and here are you. And they've got all this stuff in the middle. You, it's ruining the view. Take it away. Get to see it as me as I am, and then you might understand. So that was, to me, a beginning and I think it's taken, and it's still in work, I still struggle with that, don't you dare, because it's so drummed into us um, in the church, unfortunately. But have no other gods come to the one who actually does have the wherewithal to sort out the mess, the one who really is the center around which all the, all, all the particulars make sense. And that was, so that was the first one. Mm. And, and after that, different ones came in random yeah. times and ways. And, and I started to run down and then go back to sleep. <laughs> and, 
And then we started to do the cafe. I can't remember where we did the first one. Um, but we did them in Russia quite a bit mm. and in Ukraine. Because we, with one on theft, I was walking down a street and I saw a man bring out the most enormous bunch of keys I've ever seen. I thought, that must be heavy. Just the sheer weight of it. And didn't think of it. My friend and I walked to his apartment and then he opened his suitcase and brought out a briefcase and brought out his big bunch of keys. And it took him eight keys to get from the front door up to his apartment. And, and I thought, that, that, is, that is painful uh, on all sorts of levels, psychologically painful. If you always have to be thinking about your things and, and, uh, and the behavior of other people. And so that's, that was, it was there trying to help people who'd been so many years under so much trauma. And now you, you see where they are today. Part of what they are doing today is saying we want the rule of law and we have to um, get break our ties with our cousins the Russians if we're going to do that because they clearly don't want the rule of law that's what in a nutshell that's what what the Ukrainian conflicts about it's not just about bit of territory um, so it, it came out of trying to help people see and think what would um, what could be better because they felt so worthless apart from anything else. You, um, in the second portion that you read um, at the beginning, um, you used that image of the alarm clock pieces and all the fragments and um, needing something to integrate the fragments. And of course, given what you just said um, about the first commandment and God as the being who calls us to have nothing in between us and, uh, us and God because he is that integrating, that integrated presence. Um, that would mean that it, if the, the Decalogue flowing from his character, in the transcription of his character in, the, in so many ways, um, it's not just a matter of everyone deciding, ah, yes, this now we will follow it. It wouldn't be that simple. What do you think the what do you think the process looks like for a society or community who want to live according to this design? What is, what is involved at the, at the root of it for change to need to happen? Hmm. The, uh, as, I, as I wrote in that first piece, I have to be aware of idealism and, and of pushing that idealism um, <coughs> doesn't help us and moralism doesn't help us what what this has done for me apart from anything else is help me see and confront my own heart my own life my own desires that are torn and uh, and and rest I, to wrestle with them and to say what what do I want um, and these ten areas which it talks about uh, are are really helpful as a structure to, to, to go through that process uh, of, of re-envisioning. But I'm not naive to think that um, I could do it on my own. Um, there's something fundamentally missing. Um, and if I don't, um, if I forget it, my wife 
soon reminds me, usually when we talk about this, she says, don't you forget, you can't do it on your own. And, and she's, of course, she's right. That, that, that fundamentally, if, if God is, and as soon as you use the word God, everybody fills that space with something. And, and sometimes that can be quite destructive. Uh, how do you work through that, that word until it's a positive word? Uh, most of us harbor something very dark when we use that word. Um, but seeing it as the source of beauty, and someone said, I think it was Esther Meek, she was quoting someone else, but she said, you know you've encountered beauty because it integrates you. And God is, 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 you just look at the creation, the force and the wonder and the, and the, 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 the beauty of it, the magnificence of it. And there's a being behind it uh, that, that will, is offering himself to us, his creation. And I think it's that encounter that, that sets the ball in motion. But it, it's obviously also a confrontation with yourself to realize I need help. I, I can't do this alone. The trouble is we've got so much religious baggage we <laughs> that gets in the way. I'm, I'm a very, this is going to sound awful, I'm a very unreligious person. If you mean by religion, you mean all of the, the formal structures and so on, because they don't do the, the trick. If they did, we'd be living in a much, we live in an incredibly religious world, but it doesn't seem to get us where we need to be. So uh, let's, for a final question, posit your non-religious person who comes to your book launch next week in the High Street in Petersfield, which is when? That's the... Uh, Tuesday. 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 Five o'clock, is that One free book, <laughs> five o'clock, Petersfield. Do this again if you want. Um, uh, who comes, sees the signs all around Petersfield, and then realizes that it's a book about the Ten Commandments. How do you sell them on it? Well, it isn't about the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are a shadow of something much grander. Mm -hmm. That's the first thing. They are simply um, an Old Testament way of saying something, of, of, of putting for those people in their situation something that was very a marker stone of the limits of, of the negative. But you can turn it around and you see the, the positive. Mm -hmm. uh, the generosity of God, you know, who, who says, um, I will never leave you or forsake you. Um, what do you have that you haven't received? When you think about it for a while, what have we got that we haven't received from somewhere, from generosity? Um, do not murder. And he says, I have come to give you life and to give it abundantly to you. So what does that look like? That's what's important to me. Um, all of this does, it gives you a sort of a marker, holder, a place to say, this is the shadow. What does the real thing look like? Yeah. And then we have to work that out. We have to look and, and, and imagine it. Can you take two or three minutes and talk to your neighbor or someone around you about what, we've, uh, what you've heard tonight so far? 
and then we'll come back together in uh, yeah in two or three minutes and take some questions and responses from March. So go ahead and talk amongst yourselves, and I'll draw us back together in a moment or two. Does anyone anyone for a first question or a first idea that they'd like to raise raise for March? Right uh, right there. Yeah. Go ahead. In order to be trusted, we have to be trustworthy. And we have to ask ourselves, what is the basis on which I'm claiming to be trustworthy? And then I have to be consistent to that. Um, and what I'm looking for, what we are looking for when we're evaluating whether we can trust someone is, is the relationship between what they say and what they do. We're looking for some sort of integrity between what they say and what they do. Which is interesting to me because in Genesis chapter 1, God says eight times, I, I, I say and it happens. I say and it happens. In fact, chapter 1, to my mind, is you can trust me to keep my word. Um, something most people overlook in their desire to find other issues there. Um, so, so that ability to have integrity inside which comes out, so I will treat you with dignity, I will treat you with honour, um, because you are a human being and not for any other reason, not for anything I'm going to get back from you. So those are some of the basis that I take out of, of, of the teaching from the, the commandments. That um, e even the second one, which is don't make false images, and I think, how often do I evaluate and impose my inner life onto another person because they look like someone I used to know? Or some, some other thing. How I project my inner turmoil onto someone rather than allow them to be a blank slate that I will willingly receive. Allow them to write their own script. And so that, that to my mind, are th those are the kinds of things that this gives a basis for me to be trustworthy and to evaluate, um, you know, does this person have their sense of worth or are they always trying to, to get it from somewhere? In which case, they might be going to try and get it from me at some stage. Um, there's, there's, yeah, lots of ways that that may just give you a few clues about where my mind would go. Yeah. You, you're describing that each... Um, finger of the Decalogue, as it were, is, is a litmus test for trust in many ways. It re reveals a component of trust in some, in some fashion. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And it's deep because one of them says, do not commit murder. And I, um, I was once evaluating my life around them, and I th came to that one, and I said, well, at least I haven't killed anyone. And then I thought of two people I was speaking to. And they weren't speaking to me either. And, and somehow our communication had gotten blocked. 
and and um, it was it was it was difficult, and so if you use the kinds of language we use, um, he got thrown under a bus, or I'll never speak to you again. You, that, that kind of language contains, even the council culture language, contains the spirit of, of death in it rather than the spirit of life. So you can say anything that makes us more alive to each other is going in, this, in the spirit of this thing, and anything which drives us apart is going uh, in, the, in, the, in the opposite direction and, and will cause either trust or, or mistrust. So, yeah, those are the kinds of... Could you say all, um, all obedience to the commandments on a personal or community level bent toward becoming more trustworthy? Yes, that's what I, I think. And that's, that's the glory of it because the more trustworthy you are, the more trust there is, the more open you can become and the deeper your relationships can be and the less lonely you are. And obviously the opposite happens too. And that's what personhood is. is, is you know, we talk about individualism, but that's not a Christian concept. It's a, it's a deeply unchristian concept. We are persons. And as persons, we get to know one another and become ourselves through being personable, personal to each other. So I know myself because of all the people I know who reflect back to me who I am to them specifically um, rather than to, to just me and my identity, which is the kind of more modern concept that I have to find it and project it out. That's an exhausting thing. Um, this one is much more relational and um, I think it actually works. Let's take, a, let's take another question. Carson. Carson, I think directly related to that. Could you say a little bit more about why the title of the book is Rumours of a Better Country rather than a better me or a better self or a better life? Or yeah, explanation of the title. Yeah, um, good, good question. It's it's It's... Because of what I said, we are not, I, didn't, I, I'm, I, I almost say I'm an anti-individualist, but I'm not a communitarian. I'm not a communalist. I'm a Trinitarian. And I'm a Trinitarian because it contains both the three and the one. So we need to be one together. But we also are unique. Each of us is absolutely unique. And we should never lose that. What happens in our society is we either go to the individual and all sort of get blown away and fragmented, or we come to the crushing where, where the personal is, is, is stuffed out of us. And so it, it is the idea of a country, of a, of a communion of people that we are called to be, which allows both for difference and for communion. Does that, does that cover it up? Thank you. I was discussing this, <coughs> mentioning this issue to your nieces here. Nieces, <laughs> only one niece. Uh, <laughs> niece and friend. <laughs> but the, my, my interest is in where does your boundary lie with what you're talking about and Christian reconstructionism or theonomy, supposing a, 
<coughs> Gary Moore for Huntington Perch was to come along and say, yeah, it's a good bookmark, it didn't quite go, it didn't go far enough in your criticization. I would I literally I need to lay down the law. Yeah, I, I, I would say that probably 95% of the people in the room don't know who those people are or what reconstruct, Christian reconstructionism is. But I give you a very, very short answer. I don't think they take the law seriously enough. They leave it in the shadow and they don't work it out because what they propose is not workable in practice. It's actually a very live question in the political discourse right now. Yes, it is. Because you have, yeah. you have in America, you have a, a rising sense on some Christian quarters, a, a certain type of Christian nationalism taking yeah. rise. And then in the more conservative parts of the Catholic Church, you have the, the idea that we need an integralism, that we put the teaching of the church at the core of society. So would you say that in both of those cases, in the, the desire to... Well, they would, they would see it as a desire to integrate the law of God into society in a very directly foundational way. You would say that is not to take um, divine law seriously enough? I, yeah, I would say that any form of legalism is a reduction. You talked about the rule of law and saying that you espoused good things in what the Ukrainians are fighting for, but... Yeah, as opposed to... as a two unions in a way, so that you don't have freedom under law, or you didn't have the rule of an oppressive law. What do you mean by the rule of law? Yeah, Mr. Judge. Yeah, I mean an, a, a rule of law which allows for me to be, for us, to be um, willing participants. It's the issue of power. Yeah. Does power simply, in the, in the Catholic sense, the dogma, you believe it or you're, or you're damned? Yeah. Or am I able to be free to think? Am I able to come to my own conclusions? Are we able to have disagreements within the, a general framework? Of, you know, or are we dancing on a pinhead? Or is, is the, the scope for difference enough um, big enough. Um, so I think that the rule of um, law that I'm thinking of is one where everyone is under the same law. You don't find that in Russia. I mean, the law presently is a joke. If Mr. Putin needs someone to disappear, they come up with a, a reason why the person is guilty of something before, just as they did under Stalin, just as they did under um, the whole communist charade. It wasn't really the rule of law that everyone was under with, with a separation of, of, of um, the judiciary from the, um, the other, the other yes. two bits. Yeah. <laughs> Which, yeah. Caleb. We have a question. Caleb, back there. I'll repeat the question for the sake of the folks on, okay. on the um, online.
um, if, uh, if you're not trying to make the Decalogue great again and um, instill it as the law of the land, what would you want people's practical takeaway from the book to be? I would like us, first of all, to realize that life is not automatic, that we have to be thoughtful, and that we have to, to take life seriously, and that we should stop entertaining ourselves to death and actually start to, to live life as participants and not consumers. That's the, the first thing. And what I've written is, I hope, something that will get people to talking and discuss in a new sort of framework. And I took a lot of care to try to get rid of as much of the religious mumbo-jumbo that we um, tend to um, not to have to think about because we know the code language. And, and to actually have to say, well, what on earth does that mean? The, second, the third commandment says, don't take the name in vain, which we reduce to don't swear. Don't use half a dozen really nasty words that your mother would wash your mouth out with soap if you, if you used them. I think what it means is take your language seriously. Don't empty your language of meaning. Vanity is, is emptiness. So don't take the name in vain means don't empty your language of its meaning. And many Christians are very guilty of that. We don't take our language seriously. We don't know what we mean and we don't mean what we say. We drift along. And I would like us to say, no, let's, let's take it seriously. Uh, we can still laugh. But we, <laughs> but we do have to... Say, no, this, this, this is the only life I have. You are the only people I'm living it with. How can we do that well? And so people to the um, advice to the reader page okay, okay. At, the, at the very beginning of the book. Uh, right before you start the book, you get a little advice to the reader. I don't know if this was uh, something that the editor might have suggested, Caleb. Um, but it says, uh, uh, this book was written under the influence of coffee. It will reward you most if you read it slowly with reflection and discuss it in the company of friends with drinks of your choice. Speed reading is not recommended. Um, I read it in two days before it went to print and my brain was uh, <laughs> my, my brain was fried afterwards. Um, it's doing I, quite well in the recovery. I do think what you said is important though, especially for a book like this, it, it, because it it emerges from the cafe. It yeah. emerges from pro, lengthy discussions between people, relationally interacting over this over the decalogue. And I think it would it, people would receive it best if they if they took a cue from the cafe. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the other thing is, I it, it answers to me a, a question I had since I was very young, and that is, what do we mean when we say the word "I love"? And, and modern society has given that a particular and I think extremely damaging um, set of meanings. And I think this teaches us what it means to love someone and to love them well. And, and that should be worked out.
Probably. Yeah, I'm sure it was. Um, an intuition, to my mind, is um, a precursor to articulated reason. So we, we live in a data stream and we can't process it all. So our intuitions sort of, we spot patterns and we, we see when we're unaware of doing it. And so learning to trust my intuitions to a certain degree and then test them um, I think is just an important part of being, being um, whatever you are when you do. Um, maybe it's wisdom, I don't know. But to be able to say, I think there's something here worth going the next step with or saying, no, I'm going to go back. Um, and uh, that's yeah, probably intuitions. But not based on nothing, based on something. Yeah, I, 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 I am definitely. Get to a place where you, you think your intuitions might be good. Yes, I mean I didn't trust my intuitions, uh, but I don't trust my rationality either. So my intuitions, I, I think I trust in, in the God who's behind this, and and hope, and expect His participation in life, and discerning His voice is is a very important part of that, which is also something of an intuition, because it's a moral voice, and it speaks with the same clarity as this does, but you have to be used to listening to it for it. Yeah, yeah that's um, really interesting. Um, two thoughts, well, a lot of thoughts occurred to me. Um, when you mentioned talking about the methodology called Ten Commandments, I call it, I, I, I see you were just taking what comes in as Exodus 20 in the, in the further review, not looking at the Visitus and all the fine-tuning, which we probably don't live under. Um, I was thinking of Kant and the universal um, imperative of active every law is a universal law. Um, I mean, I'd be interested in your comment on how you could interpret it in the Kantian thought. Plus, then you mentioned shadows, and what came to mind about the, the sh shadow being a representation of 3D? I mean, I thought immediately of Plato's cave, Mm -hmm. and the falls and I'm, I, I think where I'm struggling is you haven't really brought dare I say it, Christ Jesus into the equation when he really exceeded the Decalogue as you, as you call it uh, and his, uh, on, on the Sermon on the Mount and he, 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 he really goes a lot further than that it's not a lot of rules and you can have rules and Paul himself St Paul said we do not live under the law and I'm just wondering how much you can bring that in. I mean, the problem is having a universal law that you obey and no one else, it's not universal. Uh, so I, I don't lock up my, my house, but it doesn't mean I can go, I don't want to go into anyone else's house unless I've got good reason. Um, uh, but that doesn't mean a, a thief who happens to live in the neighborhood would not break into mine. So working that out in, in real life is difficult. But I just wonder, 
I think Jesus did not promise heaven on earth. He said that the, the kingdom of God is not heaven and earth. When, when I saw the title, I thought you'd be talking about the nature of heaven, <laughs> a, a better world. That's the better world that surely Jesus um, is talking about. So I've, I've, there's a lot there, I suppose. But I, yeah. if you can sort of expand on how can how we can think about Kant in that universal and, and the idea of is there a form of a perfect society that Plato might accede to, you know, I mean I know it's Greek. Yeah, a lot of elements to that to that yeah. comment with Plato and Kant and other names, but I think what you were saying about Jesus is very is kind of is the, the core of what your question yeah. seemed to point to. Where does where does Christ fit into this conception yeah. of shadows and reality? Yeah. And and what meaning does that have for for us let me back up though because i heard another assumption in what you were saying um that there's now and there's eternity and i don't believe that god is eternal now and when i am reconnected to god i am eternal now and that eternal life is a quality of life as much as a quantity of life. Many of us who are uh, from certain church backgrounds tend to think of now and then rather than connected and disconnected, full and empty, or being filled and empty. And I, I think this is a representation of the character of God Christ is God, so it's a representation of his character. But eternal life is a quality of life. I have to work that through. And I, in being reunited with God, have that quality of life. And now there's this battle within me. The old habits of my very distorted trust and the new life that God is offering me and saying, walk in my ways. Now, not in some future time, but also in some future time. And so that seems to me to be the fundamental assumption we've got to ask ourselves about. Um, we don't need to think in terms of universals. We know that not everyone is going to agree with this. But if, <laughs> so, so the question is, what is the character of God? Well, I, I'd say it's outside time, outside space. That's and, and, and I would say Kant would agree, and you know, possibly a lot of philosophers would agree on that. And I would say he's yeah. outside and inside. That's the whole see, nature but, of yeah, the... Yeah, I'll give you that. But yeah. he, essentially, we are finite, and we have a, a span of life, score and ten it says in the good book and you might be lucky and go be beyond that you know but that's what it says i mean we are very we're made of dust that's what i'm saying we're, we're, we're talking about the eternal and the infinite and things like that that's that's what i contemplate that god is much bigger than we can even really conceive of it's only the incarnation that i have a yeah a, yeah yeah and i think you'd agree on that i would i would want to make sure i didn't um make the distinction between God being inside and outside so big that it becomes okay. irrelevant. Um, but actually now I am supposed to be um, living that eternal life. And that's the challenge. And as Dallas Willard says, um, 
it, when I die, it may be some time I realize before I realize it's happened. You want to take that home and think about it. Yes, Don. So am I. <laughs> so is Caleb. <laughs> Um, the hardest bit for me was the chapter on love. Mm. But the hardest bit for everybody else was the, the first four chapters, which I threw out five times and started from scratch mm -hmm. because everyone else said it's too complicated, it doesn't work, it's this, it's that, it's the other, and they were right. So um, <laughs> everyone except... <laughs> yeah, never mind. Um, <laughs> Um, but yeah, the, 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 um, it was too long, and cutting out 40,000 words of the beginning was painful, um, especially because I still think they're important. Um, I'll put them on the website somewhere. What was, it, what was it about the chapter on love that was hard to do? Um, I don't know. I wrote it, I wrote it um, no, eight times, I think. Completely, and in the last, in the last month, wrote it again, um, because it wasn't saying what I wanted it to say, and my editors were <laughs> telling me so, and I think I think now it does say that quite quite well, but um, now I want to, to go through it one more time again because I've seen all sorts of. <laughs> you may not. <laughs> Yeah, yes. <laughs> Just to say that Caleb here was um, editor of the last edit of my book was was Caleb. So I'm deeply thankful to him for his his uh, work. Um, Shout out to Jesse Voth. And Jesse Voth. I don't know if Jesse's on the, um, but he actually helped me turn each paragraph upside down and make it readable. So, um, and that's a fine example of being reflected back that we are so within ourselves we can't see the impact and here's that's what an editor does it's an editor is another person that gives you a perspective on yourself and if they're kind you hear it you see oh, well, it's, it's 9.30 so I think we'll, we'll draw things to a close but thank you everyone for coming out this evening as we launch this book of marches. I hope that you'll you'll leave the manor with a copy tonight and uh, tell tell your friends and loved ones about it too. So thank you everyone for coming. Thank you Marsh for writing a really, really good book. <laughs>